Well, like Steve said, good morning to all of you. Welcome to Grace Church, Medina East Campus. Want to have a special shout out to those of you who are here right now in the auditorium. Thank you guys so much for being here. Also uh, want to have a special shout out, like Steve said, for those who are in the tent out back. I know I'm pointing out back, but I'm looking at you in the camera and we're all gonna love you in this way by giving you just a second to cheer for yourselves. And with that being said, that went, that went over reasonably well, I think. That's pretty good. Uh, and then also, as Steve mentioned, for those of you who are joining via our live stream, thank you for tuning in. Uh, we just counted an honor and a privilege for all of us to be able to connect this way uh, together with God's word this morning. So as Steve mentioned, uh, if you don't know me, uh, my name is Pastor Seth. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at the Medina East Campus. I'm excited to be here and sharing uh, on this subject that Steve talked about in 1 Corinthians 12 this morning. Excited to be here to kind of comb through God's God's word to uh, hear a little bit more of what it has to say to us and how we can apply it to our lives. Um, And again, if you've been around the Medina East Campus for the last couple weeks, you know that we have started a series, or we actually started a series last week, a series that we have been calling We. So the series is called We. And actually, I can summarize this series uh, pretty simply uh, in saying this, that we, this series, is all about who we are at Grace Church, Medina East Campus. It's all about who we are at Grace Church. So in other words, um, if you want to know a little bit more about the things that make us tick as a church, uh, in other words, if you have questions about, man, what are the the deeply seated motivations, the passions that we have? the things that we are so sold sold out on that provide the impetus or the motivation for us to do the ministry that we do in the specific ways that we do it. This series is absolutely for you. So listen, if you have ever had uh, questions related to some of those things, like why is it exactly, like you see something going on at Grace and you're like, why is it that they chose to do that in that way? Or what is it that causes grace to say yes to some things and kind of like a no, I'll pass to other things? If you've ever had a question as to why we would allow a guy in flip-flops to stand on stage and teach the word of God on a weekend, if you don't know who that is, that's a reference to Pastor Tony, who's usually standing and kind of doing this uh, that I'm doing this morning. Listen, if you've ever had any questions along those lines, I believe that this is going to be a very eye-opening and also a very necessary series for you. So here's what you can think of the series we as. It's kind of like a roadmap. Think of it as kind of like the Google Maps for your journey here as it's connected and interfacing with us as the Medina East Campus of Grace Church. And so in this series, it's going to be a four-week series. This is week two. What we're going to do, what we've been doing, is we're going to take one of our eight total values and unpack them a little bit further. And so these values are simply statements that we have that hopefully communicate just what it is that we are sold out and passionate about here at our church. And so if you're kind of doing the math and you know that, hey, we're in a four-week series and we got eight values, we're not going to be able to cover all the value statements of uh, Grace Church in this series I want to draw your attention, the values that we don't cover, actually last year, about the same time, September of 2019, we did a companion series called We As Well, and so you can check out some of the values that we won't cover in this series in specific if you can go on to our website, medinaeast.gracechurches.org, and you can access all that content there. But as far as this week is concerned, here's the value that we are going to talk about and unpack a little bit today, and the value is this. We have no spare parts. 
We have no spare parts. No, we are not an auto dealership. We are not a bunch of mechanics, but this value is we have no spare parts. And so specifically, what we mean by that, if you look at these couple sentences that hopefully explain it in a little bit more depth, we say that when we have no spare parts, that everyone in the church, and by the way, if you're fuzzy or confused as to what the word church means, simply think of church as a group of people that have committed to follow Jesus and have him shape their lives. A group of people who assembled become the church so that everyone in the church has an essential part to play. Everyone in the church has an essential part to play. And that by discovering and developing how we fit each individually into God's storyline, and by the way, the storyline of God that he is authoring throughout human history can be found in the pages of scripture And God's writing this beautiful movement of salvation that moves throughout history all the way to our time in the present in 21st century Medina that we're saying that when we can discover and develop how we fit into that big plan of God for human history, that we can experience unimaginable supernatural life change in and around us. I gotta just tell you as a small aside, that last part of the statement, life change in and around us, I love this and what it expresses. Because what we're saying is when we plug into Jesus and we plug into God's storyline as that's being expressed in Jesus, we can actually individually experience a radical transformation by following him. We can, in effect, like we can become different people. We can become more like Jesus in our own lives. But I love how this statement says that that's not just true of us individually, that also the supernatural life change, that powerful transformation that Jesus can work is not only in us individually, it's around us. Jesus can transform our relationships. Jesus can transform our interactions with one another. So that's the value that we're gonna unpack today. And uh, Steve read it for us just a moment ago. What we're gonna do is we are going to look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 25, and kind of create a home base there. Now, as with all the values that we have at Grace Church, we think it's super important to remind ourselves that we derive these values from biblical convictions, that it's first and foremost about God's word and what he says as the foundation that we think this value is derived from. So we're not saying that we just randomly pick this value because we're smart or clever at Grace. And what we're not gonna do is then go back to the Bible and proof text why we think this is true. No, we're gonna go the other way around. We're gonna look at what God has to say and hopefully show you, hopefully carve a path out for you as to how the convictions of scripture show up in the things that we're passionate about at Grace. So again, if you haven't done it already, if you brought your Bible, now is the time to make your way out to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we're gonna be looking at verses 12 through 25 in a little bit more detail. Now, as you're making your way out there, uh, before we hit this particular passage of scripture, I think it's gonna be really important for us to set up a little bit of the context of this passage. Specifically, uh, the context of the book of 1 Corinthians as it's presented to us in our Bible. And so here are just a couple things that I think it's really important for us to know about 1 Corinthians that's gonna help us down the road as we dig into our particular text today. So just a couple things you need to know about the book of 1 Corinthians. Number one, you need to know that the book of 1 Corinthians is not simply a just a book. It's not as though the guy who writes this writes a bunch of propositional statements. It's not a nonfiction story. It's not a fictional narrative. It's first and foremost actually a letter. It's an ancient letter. 
And this particular ancient letter was written by a guy named Paul, who was a follower of Jesus, who traveled around the Roman Empire in about the 40s, 50s, and 60s AD. He traveled around the Roman Empire, and in major metropolitan areas, he would preach the story of Jesus and salvation, and he would establish or plant churches in those cities. Again, groups of Christ followers. And so this particular document is a letter that's written by this guy named Paul, who's a follower of Jesus, and he writes it to Christ followers in the ancient city of Corinth. Now, I think this is important because, again, Paul, going around planting churches, was actually instrumental. If you read in the book of Acts, the, uh, the establishment of the church at Corinth, you will discover that Paul was instrumental in planting this church and in winning followers for Jesus. So what we have here, again, is not just an abstract couple of statements about what Paul says. It's not a list of demands that Paul issues to some church that he doesn't know. No, this is a Paul who pastored and loved and invested in and built relationships with these Christ followers in Corinth. It's a letter. It's this gritty, visceral letter of Paul who desires something amazing to happen in real time in the church at Corinth. Now, specifically, Paul leverages the relationship he has, not only just to encourage the Corinthian church, but he also leverages that to challenge them because what you need to know about 1 Corinthians also is this, is that this letter is predominantly written, was written to address issues that were occurring in that church in Corinth. So Paul had gotten wind of some seriously flawed thinking, some flawed practices that he felt so compelled to write this letter to address misconceptions specifically about what true spirituality is. In other words, what does it mean to be a truly deep spiritual person and specifically how that spirituality connects with the idea of following Jesus? And so Paul writes this, essentially he basically says, listen guys, you gotta know about this. You gotta know what Jesus wants for you. You can't continue to operate in some of these issues in the way that you've been operating in them. And so Paul actually throughout 1 Corinthians will address systematically different things and subjects that are going on in the church, such that by the time we get to chapter 12, which creates the immediate context for our passage, when you get to chapter 12, if you look at verse one, Paul now shifts his focus or his attention from some of the other things that were going on in the church that weren't helpful or healthy. And he then begins to apply his teaching about something called the spiritual gifts or the gifts of the spirit. These would be the abilities, the talents, the skill sets, the stuff that the people in the church in Corinth were good at. So Paul in chapter 12, verse one, shifts his attention and he says this. He's like, listen, I've talked to you about a whole bunch of other things. Now I wanna address this subject. Now about the gifts of the spirit, brothers and sisters, you can even see the familial language that he uses. This guy really cares about what's going on in this church and the people that are in this church. But he's like, listen, now about these gifts of the spirit, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed. So Paul says, listen, guys, we gotta talk about this. We gotta talk about the nature, the shape, the role, and the practice of of giftedness in the body of Christ. We gotta get this right. You cannot continue to be uninformed. 
All right, so while this sets the context for the passage that we're gonna look at, I just, I wanna pause because there's another, what I might say, contextual element. Another contextual element exists in this first verse that I think, man, is gonna be so important for us to unpack and understand verses 12 through 25, our main text. Listen, I think if we can get something here, about this first verse, there are things in, in verse 12 through, verses 12 through 25 they are gonna start to pop in ways that they may not have popped for you before. And so specifically what I mean is that uh, when you look at this uh, verse one here, there's actually a feature of this verse that revolves around this word gifts here. There's a feature of this verse that's very peculiar and is often overlooked or misunderstood. And so again, it revolves around this idea of gifts. And what's interesting is if you were to go back to the original language in which this was written, which would have been ancient Greek, if you were to go back to the original language and you were to look at verse one here, you would very quickly discover that the word gifts that appears in our English translations does not exist in the original. It ain't there, okay? Kind of like some of you now that I'm getting really technical with Greek, you're not here either. <laughs> You've checked out a little bit, right? So listen, if I can just please ask you, just can you humor me for a second? Can you humor my nerd side? Can, can we dive into this real quick? Is that, is that okay? Yeah, all right. I like what's going on in the auditorium. Who knows what's going on out there? But <laughs> all right, so here's what I wanna do. Here's what I wanna do. I think it's gonna be helpful. What I wanna do is I wanna actually show you this verse in the original language on the screen. And what I wanna do is for every word that appears in the original language in the Greek, I wanna supply the English translation to it. Now, this is gonna be a little tricky for some of you because, for some of us, because the way that Greek sentences are structured is very different than English. So it might be a little head scratching or confusing at first, but I promise you, if you can do this, if you can channel your inner Yoda, if you can channel your inner Yoda, this, this verse is gonna make sense to you in the original language, okay? You guys ready? Okay, here we go. This is what Paul says at the beginning of chapter 12. He says, about now, the spirituals, Interesting, siblings. Not I wish you to be agnostic, ignorant. Right. That was my best attempt at Yoda. It's pretty lame. Yeah, yeah. I literally don't know what to do right now. <laughs> okay, so he says, about now the spiritual siblings, not I wish you, like I don't wish you to be agnostic. I don't wish you to be ignorant. And for all that could be said about this, again, what we notice very clearly from our English translations is that the word gifts does not appear here. What we have instead is this strange word, perplexing word, spirituals. And so obviously to me, the next logical question is like, what the heck is a spiritual, right? And what Paul's not talking about here are, are hymns that are sung by oppressed people groups. He's not talking about that. So what are these spirituals here? Well, here's, here's what you also need to know. One more thing about Greek that's fun, and then I promise I'll stop, okay? In Greek, if you put a, an article like the in front of an adjective like spirituals, it actually forces you to supply the words or the word things or matters or maybe a better word for all of us in 21st century Medina is stuff, okay? Like things, matters, or stuff. So what Paul is saying here is about now, I want to address spiritual matters. My siblings in the faith, I want to talk to you about some spiritual stuff, right? That, that's what Paul is saying here. And while gifts, talents, and abilities in people, in the body of Christ, in Christ followers, are certainly a part of these spiritual matters, what I don't want us to get, what I, I don't want to give off the impression that our English translations got it wrong. It's actually acceptable to have gifts in there. 
But while gifts, talents, and abilities are part of the bigger, broader banner heading of spiritual matters, this spiritual matters or the spiritual stuff is way more explosive and bigger and broader than just the gifts. And this is why most commentators and scholars, when they run across this adjective that translates spiritual matters, they say in English, we should translate it with a capital S. In other words, Paul is saying, I need to address you guys about the things that concern the person and the work, the activity and the power of the Holy Spirit of God who is given to the church of Jesus Christ to do something dynamic. And Paul says, it's so important that we talk about the role of the spirit in the body. It's so important. You cannot be agnostic. You cannot be ignorant about the role that the spirit plays. And guys, I think this is extremely important as we're about to approach the passage that we read earlier. It's extremely important because everything that Paul will say in the next three chapters, and I would argue even beyond that, everything that he's going to say is governed by the absolute necessity of the role of the Holy Spirit in the lives of followers of Jesus. The absolutely essential nature. Such that when we get to verse 12 here in a second, verses 12 through 25 are not predominantly about you and me. First and foremost, they are about spiritual matters. They are about things that the Spirit of God does on Jesus' behalf in a group of messed up people that a group of messed up people can come together in the name of Jesus and they are given the Holy Spirit to do something unbelievably and radically transformative in their midst. All right? So this is such that when Paul then tees up the metaphor of the church being like a body in verse 12, we have to be thinking, don't let it escape from your mind as we go through this. We have to be thinking about the absolute necessity of the Holy Spirit in bringing the body together. Because Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about these things. All right, so in light of that, let's dive into verse 12. Let's make sure we have the Spirit in view and in our minds as we read through these first three verses. Now, these first three verses are going to form kind of like the topic sentence or the thematic material of what Paul is going to say in the subsequent paragraphs. So this is what Paul says. This is his big idea that he is giving to us about giftedness in the body of Christ. He says, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. In other words, it's the same with Jesus. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Okay, as we start diving into this, I want to start by looking at the repetition that you see in this little chunk of text, in this thematic material. So what do we see repeated, right? It's kind of a no-brainer. We see one. The body is one and the many parts form one body and the spirit is given so as to form one body and we were all given the one spirit to drink. So Paul is very clearly showing us that there is an importance of the idea of unity, of singularity, of oneness that should exist in the church. That one of the things that the spirit does, a spiritual matter, is that he brings some kind of oneness and singularity into followers of Jesus together as they connect in community. 
But for as much as we see the repetition of the one and the importance of the one, we also see some diversity in there, don't we? We see that this one body has many parts and it's many parts form one body. And down here in verse 14, even so the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And so obviously Paul is working off of uh, what I think is a very beautiful analogy uh, because it's so simple and straightforward and it's something we can all understand. So as Paul starts to articulate, what would it mean for there to be singularity and diversity in the body of Christ? How would that work? He presents to us the metaphor of a body. And what's so beautiful is that it's so simple, right? Because in the same way that the body, my body has an elbow, which connects to a forearm, which connects to my wrist, which connects to my hand and my palm and my fingers and my fingernails, all that kind of stuff. There's diversity in my body. Listen, when a person, when another individual or or entity interacts with me, they're not interacting with my knee. That would be creepy, right? Like, oh, hey, Seth, how's your knee today? It's it's, it's so good that I'm talking to Seth right now. The body metaphor is so beautiful because when all of those things, those different elements and the variety come together and when they function collaboratively, not in conflict, who you are actually talking to, the entity that you are addressing and interacting with is Seth. It's a single individual. And so Paul just beautifully applies this to how it is in follower, with followers of Jesus. He says that though there is tremendous diversity and variety in the kinds of gifts and personalities that are present in the body of Christ, that when all those things come together, a single entity is represented or presented. Guys, this blows me away. In this simple analogy, Paul says that when all the parts of the body, when all the gifts are fully incorporated, what is presented to the watching world when they look at the church is not an individual part. It's a single entity. It's Jesus himself. Man, this is such that, like, if you've ever had anybody ask you, well, if you're a Christian, you believe that Jesus ascended, and right now, I can't see him. I can't audibly hear Jesus. I can't touch Jesus. I I can't get none of that. How do I know who Jesus is and what he's like? How do I know of his offer of salvation? How do I know that I'm dealing with the real Jesus? Paul says, when the body's working properly, That's exactly who you see. That when the body is interconnected, what is being presented to the watching world is none other than the great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And notice in this passage, for all the unity and diversity and how all that works, the beating heart is here in the center in verse 13. Remember, we cannot forget the Holy Spirit's role in this. Paul says, for we were all baptized into one spirit, one spirit. Then he'll go on to say, we were all given the one spirit to drink. So the one spirit in and at work in followers of Jesus is given to do what no other institution on the face of the planet in all of its history has ever been able to do which is take a bunch of variety and diversity and unify it for a single goal and a single mission and a single purpose. No other institution can do that, but the Spirit of God can. And notice here, Paul says that there is the one Spirit, he draws on that unity that the Spirit is given to produce. He says it twice, and we kind of get a one Spirit Oreo cookie sandwich, (laughs) 
of some diversity that exists right in the middle of it. Paul says, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free. That is to say, in the body of Christ, in the church, when Christ followers come together, there is still a beautiful diversity that includes ethnicity, Jew and Gentile. That the church of Jesus Christ, when it reflects Jesus the way it should, it should be multicultural. It should be multicolored. All of it working together to promote Jesus through the Spirit. And not only ethnic diversity, but also socioeconomic diversity, slave or free, your station in life. That there is to be in the body some who don't make as much and some that do. But that all of it we have to see is the Spirit's role behind it all to take a whole bunch of variety and not produce division to take diversity that doesn't produce division, but to take all that diversity and connect it together in collaboration so that Jesus can be seen by the world. It is the spirit. This is a passage all about the Holy Spirit. It is the spirit that beautifully assembles the diversity in the body of Christ so that that body can unanimously reflect the very character and the very heart and the very love of Jesus for the world. And so once Paul has given us. He's played all his cards here. He's given it to us. He's like, this is what it's all about. In the next several paragraphs, Paul will then begin to unpack some different ways of thinking, some flawed ways, some flawed mindsets, some flawed ways of thinking about this that have the real potential to jeopardize or pose a threat to the unity amongst diversity that the spirit is given to the body to produce. So once Paul has made this sweeping, beautiful statement here in verses 12 through 14, he's then gonna proceed to talk about two specific potential ways of thinking about our giftedness that pose a threat to the unity of the spirit. Uh, the first of these is gonna be found in the next verses, verses 15 through 20. And then there's a different flawed way of thinking in verses 21 through 25. So let's take a look here real quick in verses 15 through 20. One flawed way or one misunderstood way of thinking about the gifts and abilities that Jesus puts in his body. So Paul says, now, if the foot should say, well, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that I sound like Kip from Napoleon Dynamite there. Um, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I guess I don't belong to the body. Do you hear the Eeyore in this, right? Well, I guess I'll find my tail eventually. If you see it, just plug it on me, right? But if that's what's being said, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Many parts, but one body. All right, so what we see here is actually two parts of the body in this metaphor are vocalized here. One is about the foot comparing himself or herself to the hand, wanting to be something other than they really are. And then next, the ear grumbling or complaining about not being the eye. And for all that could be said about this, I want you to notice that though we are dealing with two different body parts and they're grumbling, 
both body parts wind up coming to the same conclusion as a result of their poor way of thinking. What do they both say? Well, they make a conclusion based upon how they feel that somehow, because they're not something other than they are, I don't belong to the body. I don't belong to the body. So I think what we have here, Paul is showing us, is we have a body part, and in the metaphor we have to see it, we have a person in the body of Christ, a person in the body of Christ, who whether through comparison with the gifts and the personality of other people, or from a deep sense of self-worthlessness, has basically concluded that the role that they play in the body of Christ is insignificant. That as a result of feeling inferior, they have abdicated their role in the body of Christ. This hypothetical person has essentially claimed that given the way they see things, given the way they see how they are and why they're wired that way, they're deeming themselves as non-essential. They are in effect saying, I'm just a spare part. Now, let, let, let me put it this way. Uh, let me ask a question to you. How many of you in your house have a junk drawer? <laughs> you all should be raising your hands. I know, this is what I know about you, because I know this about me. Everybody has a junk drawer, okay? Everybody has a junk drawer. What's a junk drawer? You guys know it, but I'll explain it. A junk drawer is that place that's hidden and tucked away <laughs> right in your house where you've got like stuff in your home and you're like, I know that probably goes somewhere, but I have no idea what to do with it. No idea what to do with it. And I don't feel, I probably shouldn't throw it away because it probably goes somewhere. So I know, I'll put it in the junk drawer. Just slaps right in the junk drawer. And here's the thing about junk drawers. Again, you don't want to get rid of this stuff because you're like, well, I know that this stuff isn't nearly as important as the other things that sustain my lifestyle. I know these things aren't like dining room tables because I know that I need to eat every day. So I need to say, I clearly know where that goes. Like, like this, I, I clearly know that uh, my flat screen, like 8,000 inch 8K LED, OLED, whatever the heck is the latest, greatest thing nowadays. Like, I know that fits my lifestyle because it helps me binge watch Netflix every night. Like, I know where those things go, but I don't know where that goes. So I'm just gonna throw it in the junk drawer. Now, I brought today, just as an, for illustration's sake and maybe to have a little fun, is uh, I brought my, literally, this is my junk drawer in my house. It's, uh, it's my junk drawer. So I thought I'd share with you a little bit about myself um, because as a communicator, I wanna feel the relationship, right? So here's, here's a little bit about uh, my junk drawer. First thing I see in my junk drawer is, uh, is this guy right here. So this is a three-quarter used Mad Libs pad, okay? So my kids have obviously used that, uh, not only because I can see writing inside, but also because of the cover. It looks pretty decrepit. It actually looks like a coyote got in my house and just completely ripped this thing to shreds, which is funny because this past Tuesday, a squirrel actually did get in my house, and there may or may not be a uh, video floating around the interwebs right now, of my reaction to that. But anyway, I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. I have no idea. How about this one? A Pokemon card, just a single Pokemon card that has seen better days. Now, my kids, uh, they were into Pokemon a couple years ago, not so much anymore, but they have like tins worth of Pokemon cards stored up in their closet. But somehow this mega Charizard didn't make the cut. I don't know what to do with it, so I throw it in the junk drawer, right? Uh, how about this one? How about this one right here? This, uh, this clicky pencil which my wife informed me after the first service last night is properly called a mechanical pencil. 
but I don't care. I call it a clicky pencil. So here's my frustration with clicky pencils is uh, I know they're useful, but every single stinking time I introduce a little bit more lead and I go to write something, it breaks, so it goes in the drunk drawer. Uh, how about this one? I literally have no idea what this is. <laughs> I mean, I have no clue. It's, as a matter of fact, if after the service, if you know what this is, after the service, come talk to me, I will give you $10. I will, if you can tell me what this is. Junk drawer, right? How about this last one? This is a, uh, woo, this is a great one. This is like vintage right here. This is a circa 1982 Dukes of Hazard Luke Duke action figure. <laughs> woo, that's what I'm talking about, yeah. Yeah, and again, I have no idea why, like he has seen better days. We're talking about the body and man, you, woo, you need to work out, bro. So, but I don't know what to do with this. I don't even know why it's in the junk drawer. It just goes in the junk drawer. Ooh, sorry, did I break something? Okay, anyway, listen, you guys get the point, don't you? When we think about junk drawers, Here's what can so easily happen to this flawed mindset to us. And I think when we read this passage, Paul knows this. Paul knows this can happen to us. And I think we know it too. We know it too. Whether it's from comparison, how many of you have ever just looked at somebody else, you revered them and their giftedness. You're like, why can't I be more like them? I'm just worthless. Whether it's through that kind of comparison or whether it's through the deep sense that many of us experience of our own worthlessness, our proclivities towards self-deprecation, the result of this flawed way of thinking has caused many of us, myself included in the past, has caused many of us to forfeit the role that we were designed to play by God in the body of Christ. We forfeited that. And let me just tell you, when we abdicate the role that we were designed to play by God and Jesus in his body, man, you are not the only one that misses out on something. You're not the only one. Other people miss out, but more importantly, and I don't want to oversell this, but the role of the Holy Spirit in assembling the body so that the world can see the real Jesus is jeopardized. That that presentation of Jesus is potentially short-circuited because we have abdicated as a result of feeling something that God himself declares is not true. Listen, I don't want to oversell that because the Holy Spirit can do what he wants. The Holy Spirit doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. But I tell you what, because God has wired the body the way he has and has placed giftedness and personality in you, I mean, God wants and longs and desires to use you. And what's interesting is that's the conclusion that Paul establishes here in verse 18. In the face of feelings that we are worthless or by comparison, we're not as good as another person. Paul says, don't go on feelings, go on fact. In fact, tell yourself what is true. And what is true? It's God that's placed the parts in the body. Every one of them, all the multifaceted variety, every one of them, just as he wants them to be. And think about it. Why do we call these things gifts in the first place? They're not ours. They're given to us by God himself because he is weaving and architecting the body to be plugged in as he sees fit so that Jesus can be exalted in the world. The conclusion that he comes to, I love the way one scholar has commented on this. His name is Anthony Thistleton. He says that, con that the conclusion of this section 
is that Paul's point is that the mere feeling of I do not belong has no validity alongside fact. It is not in fact the case that the body part does not belong just because it expresses its own doubts about its giftedness. So the Holy Spirit is given to encourage followers of Jesus to not forfeit because we compare or because we feel worthless, but the Spirit is given to remind us of the facts that it's God who places us in the body just as he wanted us to be. And so the first flawed way of thinking that we discovered in verses 15 through 20 is a feeling of worthlessness. The next flawed way of thinking that Paul will speak of is in verses 21 through 25, and it's actually quite the opposite. So this is what Paul says. He says, well, also the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker, I love this, they're the ones that are indispensable. And the parts that we think, we think in our human estimation are less honorable, those are the ones that we're gonna treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable, this is the answer to the age-old question as to who is the butt in the body of Christ. Just saying, all right. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body. So it should have equal concern for one another. So again, if the first flawed mindset was one of feeling worthless, whether from comparison or a deep sense of self-defeat, the second one is the opposite, but it can have equally detrimental effects to the body. The second one is all about people who arrogantly or pridefully exalt their own giftedness and ability to the neglect of others. You see, apparently, and we know this, I think, because of the language, the specific language that Paul uses in this section. We know that there were people in ancient Corinth, in this group of Christ followers, who were so exalting their gifts that they didn't think of themselves as a spare part, but they were marginalizing and minimizing the gifts of others that they didn't think were honorable, and they were treating them as a spare part. They were treating them as a spare part. But what I want you to notice is the same conclusion that Paul drew, the same fact that he presented to the one who feels worthless is the same conclusion he gives right down here at the end. But God has put the body together. God is the one who has put the body together. And because God has put the body together, our human-based estimations of worth, value, and significance are radically and effectively turned upside down by this great God. I mean, mean, for crying out loud, the, the whole Bible is littered with example after example, teaching after teaching, of how the way that we as human beings are wired to think about things like significance, greatness, notoriety, is the exact opposite with God. We can see this everywhere in the scripture, not least from statements that Jesus, both Jesus and Paul make, There's just a sampling of these. Jesus says, the first is gonna be last. The last one, in other words, the one that you think comes at the end of the line that's not significant, they're the priority. They're gonna be first. He says, the greatest among you, my disciples, those who follow me, they're gonna be a servant. They're gonna be the one that bows low in humility 
and uses every single resource and giftedness that's at their disposal to love and serve the other. Jesus says about himself when he calls himself the son of man, he says, I didn't come to be served. I mean, this is the Lord of heaven and earth who is exalted high and lifted up saying, I didn't come to be served. I came to show you what greatness really looks like by demonstration and example. I came to serve. And he will go on to say, the son of man gave his life as a ransom for many so that people could be reconciled to the one true God. Paul echoes Jesus' teaching about this upside down nature of greatness. This one comes from 1 Corinthians chapter one as Paul sets the tone for what he's gonna say in the entire letter. He says, the message of the cross is foolishness. What is more weak and decrepit and dishonorable in the eyes of the world than a Lord who has been crucified by Roman authorities? But Paul says, when you get the shift in thinking that comes from the spirit, the message of the cross is foolishness, but to those who are perishing. However, it's gonna be the very power of God at work in your weakness to those who believe. And Paul will say to the Philippian church, guys, here's how you ought to operate in your relationships with one another. In humility, you have to start calculating others in your mind as more significant than yourselves. Each of you should not only look out for his own interests, but for the interests of other people. Guys, in response to the temptation to arrogantly think about our giftedness, Paul says, no, 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 no. True spirituality, true following Jesus is actually leveraging the gifts and the abilities that God has given you and investing them in the service of other people around you in the body of Christ and those in the world who need to see Jesus for who he truly is. I mean, I, I just, I love the language that Paul uses here in this passage, especially when he says, but God has put the body together. See, in the original language, this word put actually can mean and does mean composed. Specifically, the analogy or the metaphor that's associated with this word composed is a composer who is writing a piece of music, writing a musical score. And this composer knows all the various instruments that need to play their part in order for the score to reflect the good creativity and the beauty of the music that the artist and the composer has invested into that score. So the composer knows what to do with it, right? He knows when this section, like the lower brass, should bring out the beauty of the melody. He knows what sections of the orchestra need to accentuate it with the harmony, with all the rich overtones and undertones that make music so beautiful. And so I, I love how one scholar, one author has put this. I couldn't have said it better myself, so I'm just gonna read this. He says that here in 1 Corinthians 12, with this word composed, he is saying that God actually here is cast as the master composer of the great symphony of his creative work in the world. The creative work that he accomplished through Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection and is now applying through Jesus's body, through the church. And this is such that any given individual instrument misses the mark if it were to assume that the music is solely about them. At the beginning of the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul will pick up the illustration of music when he speaks of people in the body of Christ who don't operate out of love. What does he call them? He calls them a resounding gong 
and a clanging cymbal. Cacophony and chaos and music, unintelligible, like intelligibility, like just irrelevant and annoying. And he says, in other words, if we begin to think that the musical score exists only to showcase our own abilities, our own instrument, we actually would destroy the work of the composer. Instead, don't miss this. Instead, Paul says that when the parts, the instruments, submit themselves to the composer's authority, the master composer's song of salvation, man, that's what we preach. The good news of Jesus Christ, that though we live in a hopeless world, there is hope for connection with God. That the master composer's song of salvation can be clearly heard before the audience of the world. Man, guys, the the same Holy Spirit that prompted Paul to write these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is the same Spirit that is given to every follower of Jesus so that we can discover our giftedness and how it is interconnected in collaboration with every other part of the body. Man, I just, I love how Paul here addresses those fallacious ways of thinking. He says, on the one hand, you're not worthless. He says, you matter. You matter, your gift is important. All the way to the other side of the spectrum. And don't be arrogant. These gifts are not yours. These gifts are about the creator's song of salvation. Paul speaks to both groups and everywhere in between. And he points us back to the central truth, man, if you're a follower of Jesus. You are all invited to play freely the part that God has given you so that the divine artist's work of salvation might be made known to a world that is desperate for it. They're desperate for it, guys. And so we might ask the question now. All right, so Paul writes this, 1 Corinthians 12. He writes it to a group of people that existed in Corinth 2,000 years ago. What potential practical next steps, like real things for Grace Church, the Medina East Campus. What do we do? What are we being challenged to do to potentially see the Spirit's work realized in our midst today? And I just want to offer to you maybe just a couple considerations, just a couple considerations. And the first is related to the opportunity that we all have to reflect and interact with the one Spirit that we've all been given. I would want to challenge you that maybe this week, because you have been given the Holy Spirit of God to teach you and to train you and to illuminate for you where you fit and how, man, what if you just every day this week in the time that you carve out for prayer and study of God's word, the time you spend with Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, what if you just engaged in reflection with the one spirit this week? Every single time you connect with Christ, the spirit is not a force. He's not an it. He's a person to be related to. And so what if you just ask simple questions like, okay, Holy Spirit, speak to me. Where am I already connected to these two essential ideas that we see in this passage? Where am I connected to community? How am I already connected as a part of the body to others? And where do you already have me serving alongside of others so that with those others, we can be a presentation of Jesus in the world? Where do you have me already? What are some steps? What's my next step to take to continue to invest in community and in serving where I'm already plugged in? 
And maybe we can go a little further in our conversations with the Holy Spirit. Maybe we could ask, what next steps, Holy Spirit, are you leading me to take? Where am I not invested and involved in community? Not because it's just the right thing to do, but because you want me there. You want me connected. Maybe what is my next step to get involved in serving? Ask him. And honestly, you don't even need to wait for this week as the band sings and plays here in a few moments. Maybe just begin that conversation right now and just ask him, speak to me, lead me, guide me. That's what he's there for. And then secondly, lastly, I would just wanna highlight a couple opportunities that exist at Grace Church. A couple opportunities that we, it's the series, right? That we at the Medina East Campus are offering. Listen, I wanna say this very clearly. What I'm about to offer to you is not some automatic spiritual mechanism. It's not some magical thing that when you do these things, suddenly you'll be spiritual. As a matter of fact, Paul all throughout 1 Corinthians is going to say, that's bupkis. That's not the way it works. But hear us out. Because we believe from scripture that we have no spare parts, we are passionate about providing every and any opportunity to get the body of Christ activated and mobilized, to get the spirit at work in and among you. That we will do whatever it takes to create whatever on-ramps to community and serving that are necessary. So that's why we talk about life groups. You've heard us say it ad nauseum, like I'm actually sick of saying it. What do we say? If you're not in a life group, get in a life group. Why? It's not magic spirituality. It's an on-ramp. It's an opportunity for you to explore and discover the giftedness that God has given you and how it might be connected with other members of the body so that Jesus can be presented to the world around us. And that as we serve people together, arm in arm, doing what the Spirit is propelling us to do, people can actually feel and experience the love of Christ. We have serve one, attend one. Uh, Several months back, we entered into a vision campaign and one of the challenges that we gave to those who called themselves uh, like members of the Medina East Campus or part of the family, we challenged uh, them to serve, all of you to serve one, attend one. We basically said, could you serve, use your giftedness? Could you serve in one service on a weekend and then attend another service? Again, it's not magic. It's an on-ramp right? To to be able to use your gifts and activate your gifts in this community environment, because what we do here on the weekend is not just about followers of Jesus. It's about anybody else who doesn't follow Jesus coming in and not only hearing God's word preached, but also experiencing the one true Jesus in a community of people interconnected. So we would say just serve one. Attend one. If you want more information on what that looks like and how you might be able to plug in, there's a kiosk out there. Go to the Welcome Center. Talk to me. Talk to anybody on our staff. We want to get you plugged in. And lastly, we have something called Discovery. Steve mentioned it earlier in the announcements portion. Discovery is basically a carefully crafted process that is designed to take someone from interested or intrigued in Grace Church, Medina East, and to walk them through all the way to an invested and involved member at the Medina East Campus, an invested and involved part of the body at the Medina East Campus. And so I would just say, if you're the person right now is like, I don't know where I'm gifted, or maybe you're saying, I know that I'm gifted, but I don't know where it fits yet. Discovery is the place you gotta plug in. You gotta plug in. And the first step of discovery is intro. And I think that's coming up in a couple weeks. Steve talked about it. Go to the Welcome Center, register, connect that way. You can even grab your phone, get out the Grace Church app. You can register that way. Now listen, all of these again are opportunities. Here's here's the bottom line. We cut to the chase. No matter what, if you're new to Grace, 
if you've been here forever, if you're a follower of Jesus, or maybe even if you're not a follower of Jesus, and you're looking at this and you're seeing what Jesus desires for you, and he desires you to plug in and get connected with all the stuff that God made you good at, to get that plugged in and connected as a part of God, Jesus' body, as a part of God's family, The offer of salvation is open. It is a free gift to respond to the love of Jesus poured out for you on the cross. And that gift gets you incorporated into his family. So if you're even not a follower of Jesus, no matter where we're at, we gotta know this, that at Grace Church, we have no spare parts. We want to help each other discover how we fit in God's amazing storyline of salvation so that we can experience the transformation that he desires for us in us personally and around us corporately. We have no spare parts. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that that story of salvation that we've been talking about this morning, we recognize that that comes from you and you alone. Jesus, we recognize that the author of Hebrews says that you are the author and the finisher of our faith. You perfect the faith that we place in you. And Jesus, I firmly believe from what we read that you have poured out, you have sent your Holy Spirit into followers of Jesus so that you can take what we are in our fledgling faith with you and you can work actively that process of transforming us as we walk through this life. Jesus, help us to see afresh that your spirit is it that your spirit is the one that does the work and that when we yield to him and his movement, we can become free of all the negative feelings of either worthlessness or arrogance and we can come into this transformative power to see how you are building something collaborative so that we might be a part of showing Jesus in a more vivid way to the world around us. God, for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus here, ignite our hearts to these ends. Help us, Holy Spirit, speak to us even as we do that business with you in conversation this week. Help us to see and then give us the power to take the step that you're calling us to take, each and every one of us. And for those who aren't followers of Jesus, Jesus, I pray that what they got today in their experience here at Medina East is a true reflection of you. And I pray that you would continue to work on their hearts and in their lives so that they can just know the free hope and the family that they have been invited into because of you and you alone. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your word. Thank you for connecting us in this way. And we pray in your name, amen.